Hi, I'm David Drubin. I'm a professor and co-chair at the University of California, Berkeley. And in this fourth segment, I would like to tell you about our studies on actin assembly in budding yeast. These studies have focused on the assembly and disassembly processes that are occurring in these cortical actin patches, which are sites of clathrin-mediated endocytosis. This, um, again, is a summary of this endocytic pathway in budding yeast and the internalization step, the invagination of the membrane and the formation of a vesicle are driven by the assembly of actin and which is followed immediately by actin disassembly. So actin assembles at a very predictable time in this pathway for about eight seconds and then it begins to disassemble for the next eight seconds. Because this happens in such a predictable manner, we found that this is a very good process to use to elucidate the mechanisms that are involved in regulating the assembly and disassembly of actin filaments. And this happens to be an ARP23 mediated actin assembly pathway. Now, a number of labs have done beautiful biochemical studies on the ARP23 mediated actin assembly pathway, um, including the Pollard and Carlier labs and others. And this diagram was made by Dyke Mullins in the Pollard lab, when he was in the Pollard lab, and it really beautifully summarizes the sort of key events in this process by which the ARP23 complex nucleates actin filament assembly, and then the filaments age over time and get disassembled. They get capped as they're growing, um, which is important for force generation by capping protein, and then they get recycled back to uh, for new rounds of actin assembly by the ARP23 complex. And so studies uh, from the Carlier lab reconstituting the listeria motility, which I talked about in, an, in uh, my first segment, uh, showed that there were some essential key steps here. One of those is the disassembly of the actin cytoskeleton, which is mediated by cofilin or sometime, which is sometimes called the actin depolymerizing factor, or ADF. There's the capping of filaments. The filaments have to remain short, or else they can't resist the compressive forces of the plasma membrane. And then, of course, there's the nucleation of this network by the ARP23 complex. And these were all the steps that were identified as essential in the reconstitution of listeria motility. There are also steps that are important when one makes mutations in genetic organisms, for example. And these are the steps that, to a large extent, my, my lab is focused on in studying actin assembly and disassembly. So I'd like to start first talking about the disassembly process. Remember, actin assembles as ATP actin. As the filaments age, they become eventually ADP actin, and then they become substrates for fragmenting or severing by the protein cofilin. So quite a while ago, Ann Moon, as a graduate student in my lab, together with Paul Janmi, when he was on sabbatical in Berkeley, fractionated yeast extracts and looked for activities that affected the viscosity of actin solutions, and they purified yeast cofilin. Pekalapalainen joined the lab as a postdoctoral fellow and made mutations in cofilin and was able to demonstrate that in a living cell, cofilin is essential for the turnover of the actin cytoskeleton. And finally, we collaborated with the Amberg lab when Avi Rodal was a graduate student in the lab 
and showed that a protein called AIP interacts with cofilin to disassemble actin filaments. So, when Wojtek Okerglak joined the lab as a graduate student, he wanted to study the function of cofilin in the context of this actin-mediated endocytic pathway in budding yeast. And so, he was able to tag cofilin with green fluorescent protein, which is kind of remarkable, because cofilin is only a 14-KD protein. But he found an internal loop where he could make a GFP integration and made a functional cofilin. And so, he was able to look at cofilin dynamics in living yeast cells. And so, this is a montage of an endocytic site in yeast cells, which have been tagged... Uh, so, they're expressing uh, an actin marker in red and cofilin in green. And what you can see is that actin starts to assemble at an endocytic site. And then, with a delay of about three and a half seconds, cofilin gets recruited to that site. And that's consistent with cofilin binding to ADP actin and not ATP actin. You can also see that really dramatically in this chymograph on the surface of the cell where we see the actin assembles at the end of the endocytic pathway, where it starts to assemble on the surface and then moves from the surface into the interior of the cell. And cofilin joins the actin only after the actin and vesicle started to internalize into the cell. And in Wojtek's studies, he was able to nicely provide evidence that the cofilin is, in fact, being attracted to ADP actin and not ATP actin. Okay. So, then he wanted to take a deeper dive into how cofilin was functioning in... in um, actin disassembly and assembly. And he took advantage of an observation that Marco Kaksonen had made some years earlier, uh, together with Edie Sun in the lab, which is that when we look in a mutant of a protein called SLA2 that binds to actin and clathrin, we find that actin tails associate stably with endocytic sites. So, this is the surface of a yeast cell, and there are a bunch of actin tails all lined up on one surface. And this... The, this um, actually is making a network of actin that resembles, in many ways, the lamellipodium of a mammalian cell. Because um, Marco could take a laser and bleach a line at the surface of the yeast cell, when he did that here, the line fluxes from the surface into the interior of the cell, just as you would see in a mammalian cell at the lamellipodium. And so, he could measure the rate, and the flux was at about 45 nanometers per second. So, Wojtek wanted to use these networks as a system to study cofilin's function. And so, he put cofilin mutants in this background that makes these um, actin networks. And... Um, first... The first thing he did, though, was to look at his tagged cofilin and ask, where is that cofilin in these networks? And so, he could label the entire network with an actin-binding protein uniformly. But the tagged cofilin was displaced away from the edge where new actin is assembling and was in the older part of the network. And you can see that in the merge here, where the cofilin is in the part of the actin network that's oldest, away from the surface, where ADP actin is enriched. So, now, when he made mutations in cofilin and put them in this background that makes these tails... So, without... with wild-type cofilin, the tails extended from the surface of the cell uh, a short distance into the interior of the cell, here and here. But when he made the mutations in cofilin, the tails started to assemble their surface, and they extended all the way across the surface to the other end of the cell. And here, in a mother cell, the tails are assembling... are 
extending all the way from one side of the cell to the, to the next. So cofillin was important for turning over the active networks, and he could show that here the tails became extremely long in cofillin mutants relative to cells with wild-type cofillin, and also the flux rates through this network were very slow when the mut- when mutants were made in cofillin. So cofillin was important for dynamic assembly and disassembly of active networks in living cells. So what how what was cofillin's importance for this endocytic pathway? I'd shown earlier in, in uh, the second talk in this series that endocytic vesicles fuse very rapidly with uh, endosomes after they form, guided by actin filaments. What Wojtek found is that when cofillin is defective, this step becomes... when... becomes impaired. And so what he concluded was that at these endocytic sites, ATP actin, shown in red here, assembles to drive the invagination of the membrane. The ATP gets hydrolyzed to ADP, and then cofillin comes and takes apart the actin network. And then the vesicle is left without actin, and it can fuse with endosomes. When cofillin is mutant, the actin doesn't disassemble, and these downstream processes in the endocytic pathway are impaired. So when Avi Rodal was a graduate student in my lab, we were approached by David Amberger, who had made an interesting observation. He found this protein called... he called AIP1 for actin-interacting protein. He found it in a two-hybrid screen as a protein that binds to actin, and he also found that it binds to cofillin. And so since we were working on cofillin and actin, he came to us and asked if we could collaborate to try to learn something about what AIP1 might be doing and whether it might be working together with cofillin. And so here's an assay that Avi did. And in this assay, you can add cofillin to actin filaments, and um, cofillin will sever the actin filaments but the filaments will still pellet in an ultracentrifuge because the actin has been broken into short fragments, but they're still oligomers that will pellet. What was really interesting is that when Avi added AIP1 to the reaction that had cofillin and actin, is now the actin moved completely to the supernatant. And she could see these effects even at low stoichiometries, like 1 to 10, and there was even an effect here evident at 1 to 50 levels. So AIP1 was working together with cofillin to reduce short fragments of actin into likely actin monomers that could not be pelleted by ultracentrifugation. Wojtek wanted to further explore the mechanism of AIP1 function and what it was doing inside a cell. And he made a really interesting observation and surprising, totally unexpected, when he was analyzing the phenotypes of AIP1 cells. Because unlike cofillin mutants, even though AIP1 had a very dramatic effect in these biochemical assays, its in vivo effect was much more subtle. In order to see the effect, he had to treat the cells with latrunculin A, this monomer-binding drug. What he found was remarkable, was that for some minutes after he treated the cell with latrunculin A, they could still assemble actin, okay? During this time, the actin structures overall were disappearing from the cell because the monomers were getting soaked up by the latrunculin. But even several minutes after treating the cells, these are endocytic events with a coat protein followed by a burst of actin. They were continuing to occur several minutes out. We could still get a robust burst of actin assembly to drive endocytic internalization. We thought, how could this happen under conditions where latrunculin A 
is depolymerizing most of the structures in the cell and has soaked up the actin monomers. And so we generated a hypothesis for this. Our hypothesis was that there's a pathway for assembly of actin oligomers in the cell, and that these oligomers are resistant to the action of latrunculin A. So how could he show that? So it turned out that uh, Emil Reisler at UCLA had developed a really nice technique for looking at actin oligomers. He found that if you um, introduced uh, a cysteine at position 41 in actin, you could then add any of a number of crosslinking agents and crosslink actin filaments so that the oligomers were preserved when you ran non-reducing gels. And so here, Wojtek did a biochemical assay where he used this trick, and he found that even as he added increasing levels of cofillin to his assay, he could still see many uh, oligomers in, in his reaction using this crosslinking agent. So cofillin was not sufficient to break down the oligomers into monomers. However, the addition of AIP1 uh, greatly reduced the number of oligomers and greatly increased the number of monomers. So AIP1 synergized with cofillin, which cofillin fragmented the actin, but together they were able to produce actin monomers. Also, in a living cell, when Wojtek expressed this variant of actin, he was able to show that the monomer pool was depleted and the oligomer pool was increased um, in AIP1 null mutants. And so we concluded from these studies, generally we think of the assembly process as occurring uh, strictly through monomeric actin, but it's been known for some time that actin oligomers can anneal in vitro. And what Wojtek showed, there's two things. One, the AIP1 is responsible for converting short fragments of actin into actin monomers. And two, that actin oligomers can robustly assemble in a living cell. So next, we want to explore this capping activity that occurs after filaments are nucleated by the ARP23 complex that controls their elongation. And you'll recall that capping was important, uh, essential for the movement of listeria. And when Alfie Michelot joined the lab as a postdoc, he was able to show... He, he was able to produce listeria-type movements by putting the yeast wasp protein on microspheres and introducing those into a concentrated yeast extract. These uh, spheres would then assemble actin tails, which would propel them through the extract. So now we had a system where we could combine genetics and biochemistry in order to study mechanisms like filament capping. And so there was kind of a, a puzzle about capping protein, which was that capping protein was found to be essential for processes when systems like the Carlier uh, listeria system were reconstituted from pure components. Capping protein cofillin, and ARP23 were the essential components, okay? But when motile processes were looked in the full complexity of a cell or in extracts, there was often very subtle effects. And this is true in yeast cells. When we knock out capping protein, surprisingly, actin assembly occurs very robustly, and endocytosis still occurs, uh, this act very much actin-dependent process. So what was going on? And uh, again, here, this shows the results from the Carlier lab, where capping protein was one of the essential pro proteins in their reconstituted system. And so we came up with a hypothesis. And we hypothesized that in the full complexity of the cytoplasm, 
there are likely to be multiple functions that control the growth of actin filaments. And we thought yeast was the ideal system for looking for those alternate uh, mechanisms because you can do a so-called synthetic lethal screen where you make a mutation in one gene, and then if there are genes that provide redundant or overlapping functions, you can find those when you make the double mutants. And so we got together with uh, Constanzo and Boone in Toronto, and we started their... Capping protein is a heterodimer made from CAP1 and CAP2, and with the help of the Boone lab, did a genetic screen and found the mutants along the middle here that all were... had synthetic phenotypes with mutants of capping protein. And these were all then candidates for new factors that control filament elongation. And here was our friend AIP1, as well as ABP1, a gene that we'd found some years ago in the lab. And it turns out ABP1 makes a complex with AIM3, and AIP1 associates with cofilin. And so when we used Alfie's in vitro assay, a single mutant in any of these proteins, including capping protein, AIM3, ABP1, had no effect on the ability to form actin tails that would propel beads through the... through the yeast extract. Here, we've fluorescently labeled the actin so we can see the tails that are propelling the beads. But mutants in proteins that were implicated genetically as being redundant caused a complete loss of the ability to form these tails and propel the beads through the extract, which was evidence for redundancy in these elongation uh, regulation mechanisms. And so, when we looked at where AIP1 and capping protein are in these networks that we can form in yeast cells, these actin networks that assemble at the surface of the cell and then um, flux into the interior of the cell, we found when we labeled uh, AIP1 with GFP that the AIP1 was displaced towards the older part of the actin network, and that um, when we labeled capping protein, capping protein was in the newer part of the network. And this made sense because the capping protein was capping filaments as they were starting to... shortly after they were assembling, and AIP1 was working with cofilin to cap filaments after they were severed to prevent them from annealing or nucleating the assembly of new filaments. And so, what we conclude from these experiments, both combining genetics and biochemistry, is that in a normal wild-type cell, there are at least three mechanisms for controlling the growth of actin filaments. There's capping protein, shown in yellow here. There's this ABP1 protein that works with AIM3 in purple. And then there's AIP1 in green. And the AIP1 and capping protein occupy different parts of the network. When we eliminate one of these proteins, the other proteins are able to step in and, and provide enough capping activity to control the network. But when we make specific pairwise combinations, we, the whole network breaks down because of the, abil- the... because the cells no longer have the ability to control the, uh, the uh, assembly of, of their actin network. Okay. So, returning then to this uh, diagram uh, produced by Mullins and, and Pollard, um, the, the last step that our lab has focused on is the nucleation of these actin networks, okay, by the ARP-23 complex. And so, when we look at our diagram that summarizes uh, years of work into working out this endocytic pathway in budding yeast, uh, we identified a number of different modules that perform different functions at different times and positions in these uh, endocytic events. And one of these modules we call the WASP 
myosin module because it contains the yeast wasp called LAST17, and it contains a type 1 myosin plus some half dozen additional proteins. And these are the proteins that um, nucleate the assembly of actin filaments and generate forces on those, on those actin filaments. And so we've been very interested um, in a couple of questions. You know, how does actin assembly generate forces that are harnessed to invaginate the membrane? What activities are necessary? And then also, why is this whole pathway so complex? Why do you need so many proteins to make a vesicle? And so we thought a good place to start was looking in this wasp-myosin module, which has many proteins that were all, all had multiple domains. And could we find out what are the essential functions that are being carried out by this, this wasp-myosin module? And so evidence that this really is a valid, uh, um, that it's really valid to call this a module comes from work from Rung Li when uh, her postdoc Soulard uh, was able to purify most of the proteins in this module as a complex. And so Eric Llewellyn and Ross Peterson and, and others in my lab got together and decided to see if they could distill down the activities of all the proteins in this module and find what are the essential activities for endocytosis. And so they made deletion mutations of whole genes, they deleted domains of proteins, they made an artificial fusion protein, which is shown here. What they found is that all you needed to drive this actin-mediated endocytic event were a couple domains from a type 1 myosin and a couple domains from the yeast wasp protein. And that was sufficient. This protein, this artificial synthetic protein, could replace all of the other proteins in the module and make productive endocytic vesicles. So what are the activities, then, that are contained in this module? There are four activities, and they're shown here. One activity is the so-called nucleation-promoting factor activity, the ability to activate the ARP23 complex. That is absolutely essential to nucleate actin filaments for productive endocytic events. The second is a myosin motor activity. A myosin motor activity is essential for productive endocytic events. You also need a so-called Th1 domain that binds to acidic phospholipids. Finally, a proline-rich domain was needed in this uh, synthetic molecule, because that proline-rich domain is required to recruit this molecule to the endocytic site. And that was very interesting to us, the need for a proline-rich domain to concentrate the, this machinery for assembling actin and making forces on actin at the endocytic sites, because work from Michael Rosen's lab um, had shown that proline-rich motifs can interact in, in a, when they're in a multivalent state, with SH3 domains in a multivalent state to make liquid droplets in solution, okay, in biochemical studies. And we wondered whether something like this might be occurring during the endocytic pathway in yeast. In fact, if you look at the proteins in the wasp-myosin module and upstream from it, many of these proteins, there's huge enrichment, have SH3 domains and proline-rich domains and they're multivalent. They have many of these, multiple SH3 domains, multiproline-rich domains. And so we hypothesized that some kind of condensation reaction in the living cell is responsible for distilling down and concentrating this machinery in the wasp-myosin complex and bringing it to the endocytic site to nucleate this burst of actin assembly. And so some years ago, 
we found a master regulator of endocytosis in yeast as a protein kinase called PRK1. What happens is there's a burst of actin assembly at the plasma membrane. The actin recruits this kinase, and the kinase feeds back and turns off actin assembly. We made a so-called analog-sensitive allele of PRK1 kinase using a technology that Kayvon Chokot at UCSF developed. And so that gave us a chemical switch where we could turn on and off the kinase. And so remember, this kinase causes the actin nucleation to stop. And so when we inhibit the kinase, the actin nucle- new actin sites can be assembled, but they can't be disassembled. And so here, we've done that, and we've added this inhibitor and right now. And now what happens is new sites assemble, but they can't disassemble. And what happens is they start to uh, all collect together and fuse with each other with a behavior that looks very much like liquid droplets. There's another big fusion event. Now, if we take a cell where we've treated it with the inhibitor and allowed these large droplet-like structures to form, uh, made from actin and actin-binding proteins, and now we wash out the inhibitor, what we find is that immediately this structure dissolves. Again, behavior that looks like a liquid droplet. So, trying to explore this network, Edie Sun, a specialist in the lab who has been involved in many of the studies I've talked about today, decided to dissect this network of SH3 proline-rich motif interactions. And she looked through it and used literature uh, and used her evidence from her own studies and was able to find that there were two sites that she could perturb in this very complex network that would dissociate the endocytic machinery from the actin assembly machinery. And these cuts prevented the type 1 myosin and the WASP protein from being recruited to endocytic sites. Interestingly, all of these proteins have homologs in mammalian cells, and the ones, PAN1 and SLA1, that are responsible for recruiting the actin machinery to endocytic sites in these cells have a homolog called intersectin in mammalian cells. So we think the principles that were learned from ED studies are likely to apply in mammalian cells. So what happens when you snip these two specific interactions? What happens is really fascinating. The endocytic sites assemble on the surface of the yeast cell, shown in green, but the actin, now shown in red, is completely uncoupled from the endocytic sites. It still assembles, but it assembles on these internal rocket tail-like structures that look a lot like these listeria that swim around inside the cell. So, so Edie was able to uncouple actin assembly from the formation of the endocytic sites. She was able to restore this by artificially recruiting these uh, wasp or myosin proteins back to the endocytic site. Now, what's really interesting here is that in a wild-type cell, the wasp protein accumulates over time. The fluorescence intensity monitors the accumulation of WASP. But while WASP is accumulating, there's no actin assembly. It's not until you get to a certain level when suddenly there's a burst of actin assembly. It seems to occur in sort of an all-or-nothing or switch-like manner. When Edie made the mutation so WASP no longer gets recruited to the site and then putting an artificial way of recruiting it, again, you needed WASP to rise to a certain level. You needed more, which wasn't surprising because it had lost its multivalency, before, again, there was this sudden burst of actin assembly. And so from this, what we think is that this... uh, that there may be a phase transition involving these multivalent uh, linker proteins that concentrate the WASP and the myosin together uh, at these endocytic sites, and that only when the concentration gets high enough 
is there a burst of actin assembly. And so, for these studies, uh, I went through a lot of work that covered a lot of former members, current and former members of the lab, and they are all listed here. And that's the last of my four segments. <laughs>